Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Michael Gapen joins us now, the chief U.S. economist at Barclays. And Mike, you've pointed out, let's go in March. My question would be, what would stop them between now and then? Well, really not much. I mean, you, you would need a major shift in terms of, say, an Omicron effect on the economy, a geopolitical event that, that would somehow disrupt um, the economy or risk-taking sentiment. But in terms of where the Fed is on their, on their dual mandate, inflation and the labor market, they're basically there. Uh, So coming out of the last employment report with the unemployment rate at 3.9, another month of solid employment gains, a six-tenths rise in average hourly earnings, that pretty much meets their bar. So I think in in January, at the January meeting, at the end of this month, they could very well declare we're we're at full employment. Yesterday, Powell said we are at or very close to full employment. They've already told us they're there on the inflation side. So I, I don't really think anything stops them from going in March, except one of these kind mm-hmm. of outlier events. I think they're ready. Michael Gapin, you and I are the only ones that will understand in 1982, Eye of the Tiger reigns supreme. So inflation's rising up back on the street. Is this the same inflation as 1982? No. Um, so that was Rocky Three, right? I think uh, so. Rocky I, I, Five. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the the seventies and eighties inflation was a, a, a multi-decade period of demand exceeding supply, creating wage price spirals, higher inflation expectations. It was very much a demand-driven story, although there were certainly supply shock components to it with with the oil market at the time. This is is a very different outcome. It's not necessarily from persistently easy policy over previous decades and expansionary fiscal policy. Obviously, we have some of that in the response to the pandemic. We think it's still primarily a pandemic-driven story that is likely to ease over time. And as you mentioned in the last segment, what can the Fed do about that? I, I think a lot of this risk management positioning is about preventing right. second round effects, right? Preventing those the impulse today from showing up in a lot higher, longer run inflation expectations. So I do think it's a very different inflation. So how the Fed responds to it should be different. And Michael, what's so important here is just a president and his will to survive. What does President Biden do with 7% inflation? Uh, in, in part, talk about that you, you get it. You see it, you get it, you understand the problem. It it crimps real incomes. Households are very sensitive to changes in in energy prices and and food prices. Uh, And then you also wanna take some steps perhaps to to help solve it. Uh, Make sure that your Federal Reserve Chairman that you're appointing understands the issue and the importance of getting inflation lower. Uh, They unlock some of the strategic reserve in terms of oil supplies. There's discussions around, do do you reverse tariffs? On, on imports from China. So what can you do to help bring inflation down and stabilize the situation? But certainly he has to say, we get it and we understand it and we're taking corrective measures. How do you get the wrong kind of inflation down while keeping the inflation that they want to see? As we've been hearing from John this morning, the administration perhaps going to be looking much more at the wage increases and how this is possibly a good thing for the worker Paint a picture of negative 2.4% real year-over-year hourly wages. What does that mean in terms of the wage increases we can expect going forward and the trajectory of economic momentum? 
Well, certainly, I think conditions in the labor market are, are, are tight. We still have you know, roughly 4 million people sitting, sitting on the sideline. Demand for labor is, is strong. I, I suspect labor market conditions will remain robust and average hourly earnings will continue to, to tick higher. Uh, and, and then you would hope that some of the inflation comes down on, on the other side. But in the moment, of course, what it means is it bites and it crimps real, real purchasing power. So disposable income was kind of all the story last year about government transfer payments supporting income. If you start to adjust for inflation now, disposable income the last few months has been ticking lower. So it might feed in to a little less demand. And this is where the Fed's messaging has shifted. It used to be we need accommodative policy to keep labor market momentum going. Now what we need to do is stabilize inflation to keep labor markets going and income and purchasing power elevated. So it has shifted the narrative from the Fed. Mike, part of that effort is not just rate hikes, it's balance sheet reduction as well. Informing the analysis at the moment is just the Fed speak. Where on earth is this going? We have a balance sheet pushing nine trillion. <clears throat> We're all trying to work on the, work out the month on month reduction, Mike. Have you got any idea what that looks like through the back half of this year if they start this summer, what it looks like into next year? Sure. I think if you if most of us think the balance sheet runoff is going to start in the second half of the year, we're in July. You could Powell seem to say later this year. So if you if you look at the mature maturity schedule of the Fed's balance sheet, roughly over the year after that point, you're looking at let's let's call it about a trillion in treasuries running off and prepay estimates on on MBS portfolios will give you somewhere around another 300 billion. So I think you could have at least half of that, 750 billion, maybe up to a trillion in terms of how much the Fed wants to take out of the balance sheet over kind of the first 12 months. So let's call it 60 to 80 billion a month. They may need to ratchet up to that level over time, start with a cap that's lower and move higher. But I do think that they want to get to the balance sheet sooner than later. And with the trillion and a half sitting in the reverse repo facility, I think they feel they can do a lot of draining of reserves without having uh, you know, a negative uh, effect on, on front end financing conditions. So yeah. I, I think they may try to get a fairly fast pace of, of runoff in the beginning. And, and last point, if I can make it, sure. there's about 325 billion uh, in T-bills on the Fed's balance sheet this time. We had almost zero in the last expansion when the Fed was doing this. So you may see different runoff rates for the T-bills and the remainder of, of the coupon issuance or, or the coupon <clears throat> holdings that they, they have. You could get a lot of runoff fairly quickly just by letting T-bills go. That's a very interesting point. Mike Gapen, thank you. Mike Gapen of Barclays. Right now, this is very important. Stephen Roach joining us, senior fellow at Yale University. We'll talk about the Fed here and what we're doing in America. But Steve Roach, I've got to go back to the heart of your work on Asia. And the fact is you get off Cathay Pacific long ago and far away at Terminal 1, Hong Kong International Airport. And there was the big Morgan Stanley sign that you personally put up there as you came down the ramp at Terminal Run. Those days are gone. Your new view on the new China? Well, those were the days, Tom. Um, I probably will never go on Cathay Pacific again, sadly. Um, look, China is um, clearly uh, embracing a different type of approach to um, the balance between ideology, policy, and economic growth than at any point since I've been covering uh, uh, the country. Ideology is um, 
the dominant force uh, under uh, Xi Jinping. Uh, and what has really been disturbing and shocking to some of us is how he's used the ideology to go after the uh, what had been the most dynamic sectors of the Chinese economy, uh, the internet platform companies. Uh, and um, uh, at the same time, he's doing that. He's, he's got this uh, income redistribution, wealth redistribution uh, program called uh, Common Prosperity. And so it's a, it's a twin pincher movement mm -hmm. on the dynamism of China. Uh, we all know the growth rate is slowed. Um, I'm not concerned about Evergrande. I think they can definitely uh, manage that. Their zero COVID um, uh, policy is also very restrictive on a short-term basis, but I think they can get through that right. as well. I'm more concerned about the medium to longer term right. of China. I've been positive for uh, decades, and I'm uh, much less so today. Stephen, you helped build the modern Hong Kong. What should be the Western bank response to all this? How does the Western banks adapt and adjust in Hong Kong? Well, being in Hong Kong now uh, and in the future is just like being in um, uh, mainland China. There's, there's really no functional difference between uh, you know, Hong Kong is a, a Chinese city and uh, operating in Shanghai or uh, Beijing. So to the extent that Western banks are comfortable operating in greater China, uh, you know, Hong Kong still has a good deal of attraction to them. I understand that, um, you know, there's a lot of concern because of the dramatic shift from what Hong Kong had been to what it is right now. But you just have to look at it as another big Chinese city. Stephen, you said you are much less optimistic right now about China's trajectory going forward than you have been in decades. Can you play out what the ramifications are at a time when you see inflation is becoming more entrenched and we see supply chains that originate in China becoming more and more disrupted? Well, the supply chain uh, issue, Lisa, is, is, is clearly um, uh, critical to uh, the inflation outlook. And so much of the global supply chains uh, run through, through China that uh, any disruptions there, as we've seen, have uh, a critical bearing on the supply side uh, of um, you know, most uh, large goods producing markets around the world. But, um, you know, and I, I wrote about this, you know, a few years ago when I first warned of uh, stagflation. But little did I know what was going to happen on the demand side. Um, the, supply, the supply side was very fragile, to be sure. But the demand side went into lockdown and then the post-lockdown snapback, fueled by the Fed, who is now desperately behind the curve, uh, really overstripped over uh, 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 what a limited supply side uh, could produce. So the result is, um, you know, very high inflation rate um, and the lowest fed, uh, real federal funds rate uh, in recorded history. A federal funds rate today that is further into negative territory than it was in the 19, uh, mid 1970s and early 1980s when we had uh, a terrific, uh, or a, should, I should say, a horrific uh, inflation problem. So to say the Fed's behind the curve is. Uh, 
putting it uh, very kindly. Well, Stephen, uh, to build on that and to go back to your idea where you said the demand side was rather unexpected and it plays to this elegant mea culpa that you wrote last year uh, in August in Project Syndicate where you talked about how your call for a double-dip recession didn't come to fruition because of this. How do you gauge the forecasting, the potential for forecasting errors at such an unprecedented time, which the Fed is grappling with as well? Fair point. Um, look, you can't even forecast the forecasting errors, Lisa. They're so far off the map. Uh, I was just reading an article a few minutes ago about you know how some of the best uh, sort of real-time uh, high-frequency forecasters missed the employment um, uh, numbers last Friday by a factor of two, three, and four. And, you know, forecasting is always hazardous, especially as Yogi told us, when it involves the future, yeah. but this time is ridiculous. Steve Roach, uh, Ellen Zatner came very close to nailing that forecast at Morgan Stanley. And I want to talk, as Lisa mentions, about all the missed calls that were made in the pandemic. We need to look forward. You own the high ground on the macroeconomic analysis of savings. When you hear people talk about we have an abundance of savings, or they talk about we're using our savings up too quickly. How do you respond to what that means for 2024? Well, I'm, I'm looking at it again right now, Tom. Uh, what I prefer to look at is um, the overall domestic savings rate, which is the sum of um, business, household, and government dissavings reflecting these large deficits. I look at it in net terms because I want to take out the depreciation that goes for the wear and tear of capital stock. And so I look at the net domestic savings rate as a gauge for how we can domestically fund uh, economic growth going forward. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's exceptionally low. It's about uh, running about 2% uh, over the last uh, year, ticked up a little bit uh, to um, uh, slightly above 3% in the third quarter of uh, last year. But, um, you know, that, that's less than half uh, the average uh, net domestic savings rate in the final three decades of the 20th century. So lacking in saving uh, and wanting to invest and grow, we have to import surplus savings from abroad. We run these massive current account deficits to attract the capital. Um, and that will eventually, not last year as I another uh, bad forecast of mine, uh, incorrectly felt that the current account would put pressure, uh, downward pressure on the dollar, but that's coming. Hold on, you will see it. Stephen Roach, we will wait. Great to catch up, as always, of Yale University. Thank you very much, sir. What was Monday and Tuesday gloom? gloom yeah, gloomish. Gloomish. Yep. Yep. I like yep. that. That's a nice, I've never heard that. Gloomish. Yep. It was gloomish. For those of you that want to push against gloomish, what you need is someone who chisels a 60-40 portfolio and says, climb on board and maybe <laughs> think 71-29. That's a concision of the Northern Trust Company, and we are thrilled that Jim McDonald can join us at this point. Jim, I love, love, love your research note that says the way you can act in this market is to put it down on paper. How do you get from 60-40 to 71% equity, 29% something else. Sure, Tom. Thank you for um, the time this morning. So it really is comprised of three primary bets. 
Uh, we like the emerging, uh, the developed markets over emerging markets. So we want equity exposure with rising corporate earnings and relatively steady interest rates. The second piece is that we like the credit exposure over duration. So we like high yield bonds over investment grade. And then the final piece is we like natural resources here over tips as an inflation hedge. So you add all those up and you get to 7129. <laughs> Our belief is that while inflation is the biggest risk facing the markets, that people are being a little superficial in their analysis of it. What really no. matters is <laughs> will inflation lead to earnings problems or it will lead to interest rate problems? And right now yeah. we're reasonably comfortable on both fronts. Superficial, Paul, is cocktail talk for static analysis. <laughs> I used to be, Jim, I had such a beleaguered childhood. My mother was at Nutrier or one of those schools out there that I would be lectured at the dining room table on static versus dynamic analysis. <laughs> that explains a lot. Geek. That explains a lot. <laughs> that was the agony and geek. Hey, Jim, you know, we, we got that inflation data this morning right kind of in line with expectations, but a big headline number. How do you think our Federal Reserve is going to kind of interpret the data we saw this morning? Well, in some respects, they're probably a little bit uh, happy in that it really makes their job very simple uh, in the March meeting. Uh, there is a, a very, very high likelihood that they're going to uh, raise rates and that they're going to take what the market gives them. We think that that's a critical part of analyzing what the Fed's going to do is realizing the market does have some constraining impact on them. And I think that actually they're probably pretty happy right now with where rates are because it's really clearing the path for them uh, to start their hike cycle. We're going to get some earnings uh, starting up in just a matter of days, Jim. I mean, and that kind of brings back into focus for some folks valuation and how do you think of valuation in this equity market do we need these earnings to really blast through expectations to support the valuation here well it's kind of funny the longer i've been doing this the more i've come to the conclusion that valuations are a result of people's actions as opposed to a driver of people's actions we have found no statistical relationship between valuations and one-year returns in the equity markets You've got to go out to five years before it starts to register, and then 10 years, it's, it's pretty good. The interesting thing about the earnings season is we're going to see really good revenue growth and margin expansion, and that's really what underpins our continued constructive well, view on the equity markets is 1% margin expansion in this inflationary environment is supportive. Uh, Dow up 124 points, 16,000, excuse me, 36,000. My eyes are failing me, folks. It's because <laughs> I'm the only one in the room that actually remembers Eye of the Tiger. 36,346 on the Dow. Uh, NASDAQ up almost 1%. You know, I, I, I look at this, Jim, and, and you allude there to revenues, which to me is nominal GDP. And David Bianco, DWS, was brilliant on, you know, we're trying to get back to the golden ratio of 1.6% excuse me, 1.6 ratio real GDP and a lesser inflation of one, 1 1.6 to one, sort of a traditional gold ratio of a good economy. What's your wenness on that? When do we get back to normal that gives you that revenue impulse in the equity markets? Well, actually, if you go out five years in our capital market assumptions, we actually don't yeah. have that expectation. We think that we're going to see inflation and nominal GDP relatively uh, comparable. And if you look wow. at what's happening today, we're, we're going to see 15% revenue growth in the fourth quarter. That's probably not that, that's definitely higher than nominal GDP 
but as a reflection of the higher inflationary environment. But you're talking about four or five years out on an institutional basis or Paul Sweeney's lousy 401k. <laughs> the ba- oh, excuse me, I should say John Tucker's 401k. We haven't had the opening of the envelope recently. We haven't, no. We have to have that ceremony with John Tucker. But to the underinvested, Jim McDonald, this is critical. You're talking about a revenue impulse to drive stock market optimism due to an elevated nominal GDP. Sure, that's, that's absolutely what's uh, driving uh, economics right now. And as, as we look out over the uh, intermediate to longer term horizon, that's where the valuations that you mentioned definitely do come into play. The only thing I will caution, and, and we were similar to others five years ago when we thought that U.S. equities would only deliver about a 5 or 6% return annually over the next five years. What did they deliver? 18. Now, 14% of that annually was pre-pandemic, and it's because companies did better than expectations, and we had some valuation expansion. It's unrealistic to think we're going to get a further level of valuation expansion from here, though. Hey, Jim, in your 71% equities, what's the real core of that 71%? Are Are you kind of long the traditional growth names that have worked so well for so long, or are you in that cyclical camp Again, that, that's a camp that's worked really well over the past couple of years. How do you think about that as we start up here 2022? Sure. So I would definitely be much more balanced in 2022. And the reason for that is, while it seems like value should have another good year because we're having higher interest rates and a cyclical recovery, et cetera, the Russell 1000 growth earnings expectations are at 14%. Russell value at just 7 now, part of that's artificial because it's being held back by very strong earnings from reserve releases out of the banks in 2021. The market will look through that, so the 14 versus 7 is exaggerated. But it does point out that the big earnings gains of the value stocks are probably behind us. Jim McDonald, thank you so much. Stay warm in Chicago. Jim McDonald with Northern Trust, their chief investment strategist. Bhakti Hansadi with us now on this pandemic. Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Johns Hopkins University. Bhakti, a completely unfair question, but it came up, I think, three times uh, yesterday. What is your timeline of when Omicron ends? Is it weeks? Is it months? Is it all of 2020? What's your, what's your scope of the, the x-axis of Omicron? Absolutely. So if you look at South Africa, I would have said 30 days. However, we've peaked much higher and our population is inherently different. So I'm really thinking months. I am not thinking that this is going to affect my summer plans. Um, So I remain hopeful, right, that we're going to get past this peak soon. So seriously, you think Omicron will be wiped away by the 4th of July? Absolutely. Why do you say absolutely? How do you get to that certitude? So I think the fact is that when it peaks so quickly, we expect the fall to be just as significant. And we're already seeing in New York and in Washington, D.C., that there is now a reduction in cases, which, you know, it's very, very early, but it makes me hopeful. 
Plus, you know, again, we're looking at South Africa and United Kingdom. So in United Kingdom, we've started seeing a taper. South Africa, from the first rise in the peak to the end, was around 30 days. Um, you know, so the viral transmission cycle here is smaller, which makes us more hopeful that this will end sooner. As we are more hopeful that the pandemic will end more broadly and become endemic, we're left with a healthcare system that has been transformed. I'm struck by the number of employees who have left the profession about the wage increases that they're demanding in order to stay there. How much does this healthcare sector look completely different than what we saw two years ago? So I think like the healthcare workforce is just one piece of this puzzle. The health system here in the United States is extremely complicated with um, what is the role of insurers, right? And how have they supported the COVID-19 response? Um, now we're also hearing that some insurers are gonna start covering COVID tests um, which I think is helpful, right, for future pandemics. But is that going to be the norm? And how will they step up in the future? And what is the power of the health system versus the state versus the individual hospitals in developing your surge preparedness plans? I think there is a lot of learning to be done. Um, I think we're talking about a series of after-action reports. Um, and hopefully there is a new way of us thinking about how do we, how does a health system support in a more unified, utilitarian manner? What's the answer to get Getting people in the doors at hospitals at a time when we see massive numbers of vacancies that, frankly, a lot of health executives have said are unprecedented. You know, I don't think money is the only answer. It's very easy to say, we'll just pay you more, but you need to make this work environment kinder, right? Healthcare workers are also human beings. We have the same needs. So let's talk about what it means to be able to have children when you're a healthcare worker looking after patients who are infected. How do we manage sick leave? How do we give people time to recover? What psychosocial support services are available? So it's really not just more money. That is a stopgap measure. We need to look at the healthcare workforce as a whole and think, how does this become a place that people want to work and how do we bring back the passion of medicine? Doctor, can I just squeeze in a final question and go to the statement from Novak Djokovic, the tennis star, who tested positive with a PCR test. And the following day on December 18th, he went to his tennis centre in Belgrade to fulfil a long-standing commitment for an interview and photo shoot. He felt obliged to go ahead and conduct the interview. He did ensure he was socially distanced and wore a mask, except from when his photograph was taken. Doctor, for someone in your industry right now, how do you react when you hear something like that? You know, I just think there's cognitive dissonance, right? They haven't seen the worst of the pandemic. The worst of the pandemic sits in ICUs behind closed doors. So, you know, he treats it like a common cold. And that is why we are here where we are, right? Because of individuals that make decisions like that. Um, I, I think I, my eyes roll over, you know, to be honest. Um, and I think, well, I hope you just don't come to the emergency department for a test. Doctor. And good luck. Thank you for being with us. We appreciate it. Dr. Bhakti Hansati there of Johns Hopkins University. Melody Hobson of Chicago and Aerial Investments, a co-chief executive officer, and of course many other worthy items for Princeton University and around this nation, a philanthropist. Of course, I should note that with Bloomberg Philanthropies as well. But there is a different story. It's a story that David Rubenstein dives into. And this is the youngest kid of a single mom in Chicago who, among the struggle of painting apartment walls, said, I want my daughter to go to better schools. Melody, I think more than anyone I know in the game, 
has excelled, but people have forgotten about her past. Did you explore that with Melody Hobson? I did. Now, of course, she has not forgotten her past. Uh, the youngest of six children, and she was <clears throat> frequently finding that her parents, her mother was being evicted, and they had to basically worry about where the food was coming from. She got a Princeton degree. She became a uh, co-CEO, as you pointed out, of Ariel Investments, a minority-owned uh, investment firm in Chicago, married George Lucas. Now she's actively involved in philanthropy, but also she's the co-chairman, the co or the chairman, I should say, of Starbucks and is the co-CEO of her firm. I take immense issue with people that say, well, it's George Lucas or whatever, Princeton, dot, 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 dot. It's about a character set from her childhood. What did you discuss with her about the best practices she learned enjoying eviction in Chicago? Well, among other things, she learned how to work hard and study and be very loyal. Uh, she joined Ariel right out of college, and she's been there ever since. She's the only person in her class at Princeton who has the same telephone number uh, they had uh, upon graduation. <laughs> uh, she hasn't changed jobs. The only person in her class, she said, hasn't changed jobs. David, how is that view from her perspective growing up from uh, a much less beneficial or less uh, wealthy past into where she is now, color her view on how companies should operate themselves on how they should pay their employees? Well, she believes that uh, companies need to do a much better job of getting minorities on their board and also minorities in their executive suites, and that's one of her areas of focus. She's also on the J.P. Morgan board, and she, with J.P. Morgan, have been making a major effort to have investments made in minority-owned firms. But she hasn't forgotten her past, although she can uh, go out and see anybody in the world today because she's so well-known, and she, she did this interview with me when she just flew in from uh, a conference in Dubai got off the plane, uh, cleaned up, and then did the interview. Um, then she was off to, I think, the West Coast. So she's an incredible person, uh, but she hasn't forgotten her past. Many people who come from poor circumstances, sometimes they forget their past, but she does not. She's very close to her family, and she's also very close to giving back to uh, a lot of uh, parts of Chicago where she's based uh, in terms of making certain that people there have better chances than maybe she had as a young person. David, it's a fascinating time to speak with her, especially as we do seem to be at a pivot point in the economy with a changed landscape for inflation. We just got that inflation read and real wages still ne negative, deeply so. Uh, some of the most negative reads in real wages year over year going back decades. What's her view on how to invest in such an uncertain economy? Well, her firm has been a what's called a value investment firm, which is to say they look at companies that are not the high-tech, high-flyers, but ones that clearly are going to do well when the economy is uh, in reasonable shape or not growing so well. That's what they've been doing for some 20-plus years that she's been there. And her view is you just can't just chase the high-flyers. But she does think there are values out there, and, and she's a very cautious and very careful investor. And she's not somebody who does tra travels around the world and tells people, look, I'm married to George Lucas. Look, I'm very good friends with yeah. Bill Bradley. Yeah. She actually does a lot of hard work, and she's very, very mm -hmm. knowledgeable about what she's talking about. Aerial Investments faces the challenges of active management. I remember as clear as a bell in the early 1980s when John Rogers launched his strange experiment. They have to deal in the new financial world. And Mr. Rubenstein, we have to have you comment on new and fresh investment to Citadel uh, Securities, not the hedge fund, but the order flow Robin Hood right. part of it. Please discuss Sequoia Paradigm and how they have chosen to invest in Citadel. Well, Sequoia is uh, perhaps the leading venture firm in the United States in recent years. They've done extremely well. Uh, they have made a, with a, another uh, firm, a $1.5 billion investment into uh, the Citadel Securities, a company that, that was built by uh, 
uh, a very, very talented person, Ken Griffin. Ken Griffin has run uh, Citadel's uh, hedge fund for a long time. It's about a $43 billion <coughs> hedge fund. But a separate business, which is extremely profitable, is Citadel Securities, which trades uh, and clears security trading all over the world now. It's amazing how you finesse this. I'm going to stop the show, folks. David Rubenstein here is dropping the punt, the lead line here. Fred Hersham came out of Duke University and did Paradigm. What is it like that Duke University could generate a guy like Fred who did Coinbase, did this, did this, and now takes part in Citadel? Well, I'm sure the uh, <clears throat> development people at uh, Duke will be in touch with him very shortly. <laughs> um, but obviously, we're proud to have people like that uh, come from Duke University. Uh, Ken Griffin is a graduate of Harvard. He came from modest circumstances, did very well at Harvard, and yeah. been trading ever since. And he's become one of the most successful people in the financial service world, for, for sure. D David, thrilled to have you join us in studio today. David Rubenstein, of course, of Carlisle, and an important interview. Melody Hobson, who's lived it, board member, I should mention, for Bloomberg Philanthropies uh, as well. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.